and welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield. This podcast is designed for astute leaders like you who want to learn from leaders or experts in their field who can help you elevate your impact as you advance your career, company and life. You can find out more or listen to previous episodes at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. This month, I'm talking with one of the founders of Young Henry's, Oscar McMahon. And as you might expect for a company that makes beer, cider and spirits, the business started over a conversation at the local pub. But one of the things I hope surprises you in this conversation is the considerable depth and care that Young Henry's take in their approach to business. In this rich conversation with Oscar, he shares how Young Henry generate, test and refine their ideas, the secret to collaborating with bands like UMI and the Foo Fighters, as well as how they manage the inevitable setbacks and struggle that come with leading in the modern world of work. Please enjoy this conversation responsibly with one of the founders of Young Henry's, Oscar McMahon. Oscar, thank you for joining me on The Messy Middle. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and talking about sort of the rising success of, of young Henry. So welcome. It's awesome to be talking with you. Well, thanks a lot for having me here, Andrew. And uh, look, it's it's a funny thing that when you're running a business, it, uh, and we've been running this for 10 years, sometimes opportunities like this to reflect on what you've done right, what you've done wrong, and actually sort of it almost feels a little bit like therapy, so I'm kind of looking forward to it as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something that we don't do enough as businesses, I don't reckon, is create that time just to reflect and recalibrate and either sort of go, hey, geez, we've done this well or we got through that lumpy bit or hard bit or celebrate, you know, the stuff that we've done well. It's a good practice, I reckon, for any business. There are quite a few people doing some really great um, business to business, like leader to leader catch-ups where people actually uh, pushed not just to be trying to make um, connections and, you know, spruik their wares, but to actually have honest conversations and help each other out with problems that people are facing because even though industries may be different, the principles of a business are pretty are usually pretty much the same. You know, you've got something that you're selling, <laughs> you've got fixed costs and you've probably got people and, you know, within those three things are where all your problems are going to lie. I think more power to you and I hope this conversation can help do that in, in some degree. Yeah, fingers crossed, eh? Oscar, for those who aren't familiar with Young Henry's, can you share a little bit about your Genesis story just so people are familiar with, you know, who you are and, and what you do? Young Henry's is a beer, cider and spirits company that was founded 10 years ago and the idea around the business was Basically, at that point in time, looking at the craft beer scene, there was no company that was speaking to us as people. And we wanted to create a company that acted in line with our values, you know, acted in line with our dress sense, with our musical taste. We wanted it to be loud and fun and tattoos and street art and open-minded and, you know, progressive and so we basically tried to build a company around those values. And we have a philosophy on good business is mutual benefit. 
And so we try to approach our customer and wholesale relationships with this long-term mindset of developing relationships, developing mutual benefit so that as we grow, we grow together. It's it's easy to see why the brand is, is in that 10 years has grown so significantly. And we're going to unpack some of those things that you mentioned. Before we do that, from my understanding, the conversation sort of started across or in a pub with with two guys talking about exactly what you mentioned, that no one was really speaking to you in the way that you wanted to, to see things as a consumer. Can you maybe share a little bit about how, because everyone listening has probably had one of those conversations in a pub, you know, the idea on the back of a napkin or, geez, we, we could make a million bucks if we did this, but they, they don't necessarily transition into brilliant ideas. So how did your beer talk transition into the brilliant idea? So I was working in a pub and the reason I was working in a pub was because I was actually really playing in a band, but bands don't pay money, so I needed a job to pay the rent. <laughs> so I was working in a pub as a sort of failed or failing musician, and uh, around the corner from the pub lived a guy called Richard, who was an ex-musician uh, who was working as head brewer for a company called Barron's Brewing. Mm-hmm. They were sort of – I was sort of on the end of – my band, we were sort of in the phases of about to pull the pin and um, we'd just come back from an American tour and had realised, hey, we're not going to make it. Crushing reality. Uh, and, yeah. And uh, Richard's beer company that he was with at the time, there was a couple of things going on and he was about to walk away. So anyway, we started chatting over a, over a bar and we started a beer appreciation club together which was basically, as it sounds, um, a group of people that would catch up every month, try a bunch of different beers, and basically get pissed together in the back room of a pub. This is going back about 12 years now, and you couldn't walk into a pub and buy a schooner of independent beer on tap in many places in Sydney at that point in time. We didn't have a Facebook group or anything around this beer club. So it was just word of mouth, and every month, People would return and they'd bring someone else. They'd return, they'd bring someone else. And this thing grew and grew. And one night after Beer Club, well, we both were aware that there was something really interesting and important going on here, like at a very small scale. But Richard said, you know, how cool would it be to make a beer company that's in touch with the people drinking the beer like Beer Club is? It's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do that, mm. you know. Because we got to create our own business, having fun was a large part of that. And so throughout the years, we have made beers with people like the Food Fighters and UMI and Frenzel Rom and uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. We made a moonshine with them. Uh, we made a couple of beers with DZ Death Rays. We've taken years on tour with bands. We've thrown two music festivals that we did ourselves. All of those ideas are just silly, awesome, hey, how cool would it be if we did this sort of ideas that we just were able to follow through with because we're like, well, no, that's why we've built this company, right? And we didn't even realise back then that by doing collaboration beers that technically that was like a marketing campaign. We yeah. We didn't even use the word marketing for the first four years. And that, I guess, I think that legitimacy really like set the tone 
um, really set the tone for the people that we attracted to come and work for the company and also the people that we get to work with, you know, live music venues, publicans, bands, musicians, promoters, you know, scientists. If you, if you set a tone of being open-minded and fun and easy to deal with and, you know, all of a sudden people will pitch ideas at you or will throw you cool opportunities. I mean, that comes through in, in talking to you and your branding uh, of just those values that you've articulated really nicely. And I think that's what you've mentioned earlier that is really appealing to people that there's this congruence between the, the brand, the business, the people that they interact with. How do you protect that? Because it can often be, you know, as as you scale that those values get harder to to live by because they either get lost in the scale or as you bring more people in, it's harder to communicate those values to more and more and more people. Can you share any insights as to how you did that so well and keep those values so integral to the way that you operate now? Do you know what? Can I say something potentially controversial? I actually Please. I actually think it's gotten easier. I think it's actually gotten easier to to stick to our values. How so? When we started out, we didn't know what we didn't know. We we were flying blind and we were lucky to attract heaps of really great people to our to our brand. But in being welcoming, sometimes you welcome in people that don't quite cut it or weren't actually the right, the, the fully right fit. I actually think that now we have got such a clear understanding of what our brand is, we can make decisions on a new person joining our team or a new campaign or a new product, how it looks and feels. And because we are so used to the values of our business, it's like a muscle. I feel like we are so much better at making values-based decisions correctly now because if we're sitting down with a person and we're doing a job interview, we know the attributes to look for because we are always looking for a personality type. We are looking Mm. for like-minded people. You know, once you get to a critical mass of your type of people, it becomes easier to attract more. And also if you make a, make a mistake, uh, that person sort of sticks out a little bit more. Um, and sometimes people join and actually adhere to the culture and sort of it, it can be, you know, the power of the mass is more, more powerful than, than the power of one, I guess. And we will talk about some of the the collaborations and projects that you've collaborated on in in more depth in a moment. But I was wondering, in that process of collaborating with so many different people and events and, you know, across the whole supply chain, if you like, from a publican to event to a band and all, all those things, have you noticed a difference between those who were successful and those who were successful and content? Well, success is a different metric for everybody. I'm personally not a big money person, which is lucky. (laughs) (laughs) You could Um, never be as a musician, could you? No, exactly. (laughs) You know, success to me feels like 
Young Henry's is success to me. I feel like I've created something which I'm truly proud of. I can stand by its values. I love the people here. I love what it represents. And on a Monday morning, when I walk into this site, other people smile at me and say hello. And we say, you know, how's your weekend? What are you up to? You know, uh, it's a, it's a happy, it's a happy place full of awesome people like that. Really that's success to me. Let's say, let's say that I was the sponsorships person for a festival and every year I went out and I got the most money I could for the festival. The festival would be really happy with it. But if I, if I misled the sponsor saying that you're going to sell twice as much beer than they actually would, um, there's going to be twice as many people as there are actually going to be. Sure, I'm doing the right thing by the festival, but that partner is not going to return the next year. In fact, they're probably never going to sponsor that festival again. So I'm going to have to do all the work again next year, finding a new partner, do the same thing. Mm. You know what I mean? Whereas if you have a mutually beneficial understanding and an open, honest conversation, you might land someone who will help your festival grow as they grow over the next few years. And you know what? With growth, budgets can, can you know, can improve. Um, Shared understandings work. Like it actually becomes easier the next year because, hey, we've done a bunch of this stuff. We don't need to do that again, you know. So it's a really nice point, Oscar, because I think so often that collaborative process, as you've, you know, explained, can be so much better with mutual gain. But it, it's often a harder road because you've got to work through, you know, different perspective and priorities and worldviews and all those things. Can you share a little bit about? about how you as a leadership team, you know, generate, test, refine all the different ideas to assess, you know, what might work and what's going to get us in trouble? We are very much a gut feel company in this sort of in the early decision-making phases. So if an opportunity comes to us, let's say an opportunity comes to our marketing department for supporting a, an outdoor film festival. We will only consider it if there is someone within our team that really advocates for it. So someone has to really believe in the offering. It's, it's also very tricky um, in get, getting that right as a, as a team because it's not just one person's gut feel that you're trusting. You are then allowing other people within the business to be sort of trusting their gut as well. And that's really empowering, but it, it also, it's imperfect. But what that does when you get people who put enough weight onto that decision, it becomes self-policing because people will only come and say, I, you know what, I really, I, I want to stand up for this, this concept. I think it's cool. Or people will say, oh, you know what, I'm not going to put my name to this. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about it. And there's a lot of letting go that as a, as a founder or a business owner, there's a lot of living go, letting go that has to happen um, for you to get to a place where people feel really comfortable saying, yeah, no, hey, I think you're wrong. This is great. Mm. 
you know, allowing people to have the equity. But what you get back is all of a sudden you've got people seeing things that you wouldn't see and standing up for it and it turns into great opportunities and it allows your brand to grow and diversify organically and move into different markets and and try things. Like trial is really important with a business, not just people trialing your products, but you trialing different activities because if you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, you, you know, there's the law of diminishing returns. There's people who will be listening here who've got the ideas and want to run with them and they've invested energy, time, money, budget, whatever it is, into a particular course or uh, opinion that they have. And as a founder, that can be one of those hard things that you're in the business that started, as you say, in the back of a pub with people coming and then, you know, it gets bigger and you've got to trust more people. But that can sometimes be hard as a founder because it's your baby. Can you share a little bit of how you made that transition or were there things in particular or moments in particular that you can remember were, were catalysts for you being able to do that? It, look, it's something that it's, I think it's something that everyone struggles with. Um, we have a pretty good um, little team of directors. My, my sort of everyday business partner is a guy called Dan Hampton, who's our sales director. Um, and he and I are able to call each other on stuff really in a really constructive, positive uh, way where we're able to be a good, a great support to each other, but we're also able to have honest conversations when someone is not letting go of something or is, is not holding on to something tightly enough or, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's been a process, you know, the, the first five years of our business just was so much fun and, so many late nights and loud nights and and I think that I think that sometimes as you progress through stressful difficult situations if you have people around you who have fresh energy and they're there and they're saying hey you know you can let go of that and I can do that if you've chosen the right person you actually feel really quite relieved being able to oh yes you know what you can you can run with that. Come back, come back when you're about to trip over, and if I know the answer, I'll help you not trip over. I guess it's just everything's practice, right? I'm sure that some of the first few employees of Young Henry's, maybe we didn't let go of enough, maybe, or maybe we tried to let go of too much and burnt them out. You know, it could have gone either way, but I think we now. We've now learned by doing it enough that a person joins a team because they want to grow. They want to be a part of something. So let them be a part of it. But don't get them to work over 40 hours. You know, don't put unrealistic expectations on them. Just because when we started, we used to work 60 or 70 hour weeks. We're like, okay, cool. It's not the fucking 1980s. You as a founder or a business owner, you can do that because <laughs> it's your business. Just because you did it doesn't mean that your staff ever have to do that. You know, that's that's a pretty important part of it. I want to just also ask you about 
um, collaborations because we've touched on it, but I, I don't think I've asked you explicitly enough because it, uh, you know, outside of your new town of Pale Ale, which I really, I really love, I, I admire the fact that particularly on your website, how you share the type of people you collaborate with and who you seek out or people who seek you out for those collaborations. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, you've mentioned the Foo Fighters, Dylan Orcott, our, our proudly our latest Australian of the year, is a massive fan of yours and, and you do collaborations with. What, what makes the person that you collaborate with who you seek out and why? Can you share a, a little bit of, of that process? Yeah, absolutely. The potential collaborative partner needs to sort of have pretty realistic views on what we are, what we deem as success, and they need to be able to be pretty honest about what they deem as success as well. That's a really important thing with collaborating. Is you need to on you need to have a real clear understanding of what what the other party wants to achieve with this. Uh, we did a beer last year with Rolling Stone magazine for an ex-musician. You know, fifteen-year-old Oscar would have been really, really uh, psyched on that. Mm. <laughs> Actually, forty-year-old Oscar is pretty psyched on it as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was a really great experience in the way that it sort of typified it typified what a good collaboration is about. We had links to some of the people within Rolling Stone. We sat down over a beer and we talked about our similarities and differences as companies. We both talked about what we were trying to achieve this year and within the marketplace. And we realized that our common ground is that young Henry's, young Henry's is a music fan in the same way that Rolling Stone is, is a music fan mm-hmm. and obviously vastly different, <laughs> uh, vastly different um, levels and, uh, you know, but when once we both realise, well, hang on, both our organisations are sort of in the musical space and are, um, are really invested in, the positivity around music. So then the theme for the beer became, we called the beer the unifier because we both agreed that music is a unifying force in a time of pretty tumultuous dissidents around the world that music, like always, is a communal shared thing that has the ability to bring people together. So we decided to create a beer that was dedicated to music and musicians called the Unifier. It was a fun process. We, you know, literally got signed off by um, the founder of Rolling Stone's son over in San Francisco at their head office. And uh, it was awesome, but it was, that's a really good example of how, how we treat a collaboration. It's about actually collaborating talking openly about objectives and who your audiences are, but also like, what are you into? What do you, what do you like? What do you want to do? And the other side of collaboration that, that I think is impressive about what you do as a business is around sustainability. I'm not sure many other 
or any other beverage company that has sustainability as part of their their menu settings in the website. You know, it's something that's so core and important to you as a business. Can you share a little bit about why sustainability matters to you as a business and then some of the innovative projects that you're undertaking in that area as a business? I think that sort of going back to, you know, how we started up, it's part of part of the value set. If you are creating something that's going to have an impact on the world, you need to try to do something to lessen that impact or take responsibility for it. We view sustainability as a constant, continual work in progress. Um, and for anyone listening who's daunted by the idea of sustainability, um, sustainability is it really is about what you do today and then what you're going to do tomorrow. It's about continual. Um, you've got to start somewhere, start small and then just keep going. Um, when we started our first, our first containers were reusable growlers. So we only sold reusable bottles. We then adopted cans um, because aluminium is not only a better vessel for beer um, because it keeps out air and light, but it's lightweight. It's infinitely recyclable. Um, its recycling values are so much higher than, than glass. Um, you can fit 30% more beer onto a pallet of tinnies than you can a pallet of bottles, right. all of these different things. Um, we've always donated this, our uh, spent brewer's grain to farmers ever since day one. And um, for a place like Australia where um, we've had quite a few years of drought in the last 10 years, that brewer's grain um, has been really important as a significant, you know, part of cow's diet through, through drought. We've just completed our second solar farm uh, literally as of last week. So we've got two solar farms on our roof here and we went through this company called Pingala. So basically we don't own the solar farms. Pingala is a cooperative that gets people in a local area to invest into a sustainability option. So basically local investors have installed these two solar farms on our roof and we buy back power from local investors you know, at a rate of return. So it's a really great, it's a really great thing. It's allowing businesses to, uh, to go solar without having to stump up the capital expenditure. It's a pretty low, uh, low entry level investment option for people who are into sustainability as well. Um, and also it's, it's an amazing thing that people within your community can invest in sort of the longevity of your business. There's something I really love about that as a, as a concept. Um, and, I, and then, yeah, probably the, the most significant sustainability thing that we've done is that for the last three yeah. years, we've been funding a research project with the University of Technology, Sydney. Basically, we are in the process of patenting um, the IP around a system that captures the CO2 from the brewing process, feeds it to 
tanks of microalgae. The microalgae eats the CO2, turns it into oxygen, and we then use the algae as a cattle feed supplement to reduce the methane emissions from cattle. That is all a bit heady and a bit wild, but basically at this point in time, we've got these two bioreactors in our brewery. Each of them are creating the equivalent amount of oxygen of a hectare of Australian bushland. Mate, it's it's inspiring. I think it's I think it's one of the, you know, it's one of just one of the elements that, that you as a, a business and founders and and all the staff who contribute to it, should, I think, should feel really proud of. If that's not uh, if that's not a too condescending, I, I think it's brilliant the way that you you're doing it. And from my perspective as an Australian citizen, it's it's so empowering to hear of of businesses taking on climate change when there's so many reasons not to within the populist view and without getting too political. I just think businesses doing things like you were doing, I think is just, you know, beyond admirable. It's just inspiring and it's um, it should be applauded. Thank you very much. The world can't get to its 2050 goals without some probably pretty strict measures being implemented within the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. So starting tomorrow and getting into the mindset, you know, seeing how your staff and customers, you know, engage with a really low level, um, a really low level, you know, sustainability initiative. It's a, it's, it's a good thing. It's like, like, it, like I said before, it's a muscle, you know, you've got to, got to work it up. You've got to get used to it. You know? And if you can't work out what, you can't work out what actual project or activity you could do. You know, what if you donated Friday's profits or something to a sustainability organisation in Australia and got your staff to choose which one? All of a sudden, you're starting a conversation, you're doing something actual, and that activity, you'll really quickly get a gauge on whether that's something that's going to give your team buy-in or customers buy-in, and I guarantee it will. Oscar, as well as your new town of Pale Ale, one of the things I really admire about Young Henry's is the way you collaborate with people outside of your industry. And leaving aside some of your projects just for a minute, can you share why you seek out positive collaborations with other people? Collaboration, let's, let's think of it, let's think of it economically. Every business has a form of marketing, has a way of talking to the world, has a tone of voice and a way that they, you know, have conversations. That might just be a Facebook account or that might be a large company who spends, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars every year advertising on television. Um, A collaboration is doing two things. It is a marketing campaign, but it is a marketing campaign where you are not covering the full cost by yourself and you start the campaign with double the database that you have because you've got a second database talking about this thing that you're doing. 
So you, you have the ability to grow your followers by doing something with another organization really cheaply. Also by collaborating, we create a product that is actually able to be sold. So if you think about our collaborations as being a marketing activity where we actually create a product which eventually gets sold and you've got another database of like-minded people that are getting spoken to. It's like if you can become someone's dinner party story, that's the best type of marketing. If you do a collaboration, you've got another company talking to their database of loyal people like you are their dinner party story, you know. It's that word of mouth, you know, if you, if you, if you are a you or my fan and you or my are telling you because you follow them on Facebook, hey, we're doing a beer with our mates at Young Henry's. It's called Brew or My and it's going to come on tour with us. You're going to be pretty receptive to the idea of Young Henry's. You might, you might shift away from Carlton the next time you're in a pub and buy a Young Henry's Newtowner or you'll hang out for the Brew or My. All of a sudden, you might become a craft beer drinker because of that. It's a really great way of a company who is a small independent beer company. We can't, com- we can't compete with the Lions and the Asahis of the world for budget. So we need to do things that are actual. We need to create something which is real that makes people who are like us engage with it. We can't just spend big on billboards and just shout at people till they go, yeah, fine, I'm going to buy your fucking furphy or whatever it is. Creating something real and getting new customers, being successful ultimately, is, is rarely achieved in a straight line, Oscar. So how do you manage the inevitable setbacks and struggle that come with, you know, ideation, innovation, and doing some of those marketing initiatives that you're talking about? I used to deal with it badly. I think I deal with it better. And when I say I used to deal with it badly, I mean that I used to embody a lot of stress. Um, now I, I exercise every morning. I go for a walk. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast or um, an audio book or music. Other times I, will, I make sure I do a few walks a week where I listen to nothing. I think it's really important to have some time without stimulus, just with your own thoughts silent away from everyone else when i get home i put my phone on silent and i turn it face down when when i'm out of work hours i am generally not contactable i'll check it throughout the evening in case anyone and if anyone know anyone knows and if there's something really important they can text me and i'll call them back but um getting that separation of family time and work time was really important and also you know that feeling when you wake up in the middle of the night and you've got things running through your head yeah you can't solve anything from your bed and if it's really important you'll remember it in the morning you don't even need to write it down once you actually believe that and know that that is true which it is you can tell yourself to go back to sleep and that was, that was a key learning for me and I can now wake up at two in the morning, I'll have a thought and I can just tell myself, you can't solve anything from bed and I know that I'll remember it in the morning and you, I always do. 
for listeners who are working full time to get through their daily task lists, how do you create that time to innovate and collaborate when there's beer, cider and spirits to be made? I think that my long-term thinking has finally kicked in. I've heard that supposedly a person's long-term thinking part of their brain doesn't, doesn't really form until 25. I think, I think I was probably more, more like 35, but um, I think that, that that has changed. And what is helpful in that is that you get to start seeing issues as speed bumps, not the end of the world. And you also, you, you stop looking for, you stop looking for sugar hits um, of business activity when you're actually trying to think about longevity and a longer term strategy. When you start thinking about where you want your business to be in five years, that's a huge shift in mindset. And, you know, for the first for the first seven years, really honestly, Young Henry's was a startup, you know. It was growing at breakneck speed and every procedure and process and everything had to be created. You know, it's really nice to, to now be in a place where we're starting to find our feet at, you know, the ripe old age of 10 and we have procedures and we have people and company culture and we have these frameworks, we have great networks and we're able to start looking forward and planning what the next five to 10 is going to look like. And that is actually giving me a lot of pleasure. The thought of instead of just everything being break, breakneck and reactive, the thought of actually planning the future a little bit and working towards things, it's actually a really nice feeling. And I don't think, I don't think that 30 year old Oscar, you know, in the opening era of young Henry's wouldn't really have appreciated that. How can people find you if they want to try a can of pale ale or some cloudy cider or noble cut gin, or just perhaps find out a little bit more about young Henry's? Well, we've got stockist maps on our, on our website, but if you walk into pretty much, pretty much any good, um, major or independent bottle shop or a lot of good pubs, you know, along the Eastern seaboard of Australia, um, you'll hopefully find a young Henry's product. And you know what, if you, if you, (laughs) if you don't do us a favor and request that they get it in. Oscar, beyond just producing a great tasting beverage or or a range of beverages, Young Henry's is doing an awesome job at at really just being a modern day business, I think, making a quality product with consideration and care. So thanks for sharing the Young Henry story. It's just been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Andrew. just a couple of things before we wrap up if you've enjoyed this episode and think it'll be good company for your drive home commute on the train or even mental fuel during your daily workout please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast 
And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, white papers, and some recommended reading that will help you move your mental furniture around advancing people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.